and gentlemen, welcome to another FUDS on Film Podcast. I am Scott, I'm joined today by Drew. Hello there. And, well, Drew, I like big boats and I cannot lie, and for that reason, flimsy as it is, we are today looking at some of the saltiest seamen and sea women committed to film as we examine piracy through the ages and through the genres. We've stuffed this episode to the girls for a value of gunnels defined as seven films, during which we shall leave no timber unshivered, no hatch unbattened, and no deck unpooped. Do you have any opening statements, or shall I just crash straight into Captain Blood? No, uh, beyond perhaps that I'm disappointed I didn't lobby harder to have dodgeball included, because Steve (laughs) the Pirate was great. (laughs) Yes. It's not your obvious pirate film, but it was a significant part of it. We should have worked it in there. We're not beyond such things. Yes, we didn't work out the minimum pirate percentage for uh, validity. Um, we should have done that ahead of times. We're nothing. A grave oversight on my part. We're nothing if not tenuous. <laughs> so we'll kick things off today with Captain Blood, and I suppose we could have filled up most of this episode with Errol Flynn movies, he having swashbuckled more than most, but this 1935 film was his first major Hollywood outing. His Dr. Peter Blood had put his swashbuckling days behind him, but is nonetheless unjustly swept up with the rest of the traitors to the crown of King James II after having the temerity to treat one of them, and is shipped off to the West Indies for life in slavery. In Port Royal, Jamaica, he catches the eye of Olivia de Havilland's Arabella, the daughter of Lionel Atwell's Colonel Bishop. She manoeuvres a position for Blood as a physician to the colony's governor, which affords him more freedom than the other slaves, but nothing like enough for him not to make a plan for complete freedom for him and his fellow slaves and a life of piracy, which is soon enacted in the chaos of a Spanish attack. After a successful career of bigandry, it's an entanglement with Arabella that brings blood back to the waters of Port Royal, and the changing political climate makes for some interesting opportunities for blood and his crew. Now, I'm in a slightly unusual position with Captain Blood, who are misses, um, inasmuch as, despite watching this less than a week ago, I can't remember much of the way of details about it. Um, I know that I liked it well enough, uh, but I don't know if I can give you much in the way of rationale for that, but, well, here goes. Um, Flynn's a charming lead, and his chemistry with de Havilland would go on to be the backbone of a bunch of films, and it's a pretty interesting story. And Michael Curtis, later of Casablanca fame, keeps things moving along well enough, despite this being one of the longer films on today's roster. I suppose in the context of this particular podcast, I could take issue with it rather downplaying the whole piracy aspect of this pirate, taking, I suppose, an understandable focus on the revenge against an unjust king and his lickspittles angle that's a less complex moral selling point and one sure to please Glasgow Ranger fans the world over. In short, it's an enjoyable start to proceedings. Uh, Drew, what do you make of this one? Yeah, this is the first time I've seen an Errol Flynn film. I have been aware of him for a long time, uh, the good mm. and the bad, uh, and I've never really... I've seen clips, particularly of him playing Robin Hood and things, and yeah. So I kind of thought, right, I know he's famous. I don't really know why, and and I get this, I get to this film. I was like, I kind of get it now because yeah. he's this really good-looking guy. It's kind of weird to see him without the moustache, though, because I've I've so yeah. very rarely seen him without <laughs> the moustache. But he really does have a lot of charisma. He's got a swagger. But he's kind of it's like we kind of a known smirk quite a lot of times. So you can see yeah. why he was this charismatic, captivating screen presence. It's, it wasn't by chance. So he's pretty. It's a pretty entertaining thing. Certainly, you're right that this film downplays somewhat the the piracy aspect. But that's something we're going to come on to future films where further films where piracy basically is not in it at all so I'm not going to knock this film particularly for it because it does have piracy, it's just less the focus it's 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 an entertaining film 
for a film marketed considered to be a swashbuckling film not a lot of buckles are actually swashed yes and for i'm so aware of errol flynn being famous for his sword play in particular uh, yeah there is one sword fight in this film that i can recall and it happens two-thirds of the way in yes when he's fighting the <laughs> french captain on the the coast because he went back on the, the details of their contract yeah which is weird and also talking of weird 40 minutes into the film of this australian man giving this very strong kind of upper class english accent suddenly <laughs> says i'm irish right of course you are buddy of course you okay. are okay <laughs> this is a irrelevant to the story but b no no you're not you're not irish <laughs> why is this line in here and then it mentions a few times <laughs> after that that was strange <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, there's a there's a real good chemistry with him and Olivia de Havilland. I'd actually like to have seen them be on screen more together because it works so well. Particularly yeah. that final scene when she's yeah. overacting deliberately when the governor <laughs> comes back to uh, Port Royal and he's been made the new governor and he's just sitting hiding his face and she's overacting <laughs> and he's kind of mugging away there. And that's, that's really yeah. entertaining. There's really good chemistry there. It's just, it's a good adventure film. It's, it's a fun film. I think perhaps just the only downside is it's not quite as swashbuckly as a swashbuckly film ought to be. Particularly one yes. marketed as a swashbuckling film. But I can absolutely see why Errol Flynn was the star that he was, even just on this one film alone. Sometimes like you can be disappointed by someone, like kind of wonder what the fuss was about you, but you watch this like, yeah, okay. I get why he was a star at that time. Yeah. Uh, and that's quite nice to see. Beyond that, I, I have nothing much more to say. It's just a, it's an entertaining film. So it's a good start. Yes, it's positive. A positive bit of piracy, but can we say the same thing about Anne of the Indies? I'll not do my usual and immediately um, give my one-word answer to that. So. <laughs> Anne Bonney, born in Ireland and raised in London and North Carolina, was one of the few female pirates sailing the high seas in the early 18th century. The little that is known of her story is interesting. Stabbing a girl as a wild teenager, marrying young and being disowned by her father, meeting and falling in love with a pirate, who then offered, more or less, to buy her from her husband. Then there's initially being part of a crew disguised as a man, a giveaway pregnancy. That's the pregnancy gave her away. She wasn't giving away her pregnancy. (laughs) Just (laughs) the potential ambiguity of that uh, (laughs) phrase just struck me there. Uh, stealing a ship, more piracy, being sentenced to death, and then that sentence being commuted because she was again pregnant. It's good material for a film. Sadly, 20th Century Fox and writers Arthur Caesar and Philip Dunn had the thought, Lady Pirate, and were more or less done. <laughs> Bonnie, here named Anne Providence, played by Jean Peters, is first encountered murdering captured opponents using the traditional walking the plank execution method, Though this is apparently okay because of some hand-waving the British killed my brother, wah, 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 nonsense. (laughs) One of the would-be murder victims, though, is far too pretty to kill, so he's offered a place in the crew instead. This pretty boy is Louis Jordan's Pierre-Francois La Rochelle, formerly a captain in the French Navy, and until mere moments ago a prisoner of the British, except that it's all some incredibly unlikely ruse to get him on board Anne's ship and betray her to the Royal Navy, who are holding his own ship hostage. 
Despite warnings from her crew and her mentor, Blackbeard, they were active at the same time, so they must have been in partnership, goes the film's logic. Uh, that he is not to be trusted. She will not hear a word against him. Indeed, the only thing she wants against him is herself. Maybe in that frilly, notably feminine and non-piety dress that was flagged up early in the proceedings. And then, of course, very much not in it. <laughs> Anne finally discovers La Rochelle's deceit and, worse, the fact that he has a wife. So she snaffles the wife, takes her to be sold in a slave market in Venezuela. Though a slave market in Venezuela in the early 18th century unaccountably run by Arabs. <laughs> the innocent wife is saved from slavery, however, not because it's wrong, but because she's already married. And that would be wrong. <laughs> this idea of women as property of one kind or another, balanced against Captain Providence making her own destiny, could actually make for some compelling themes. But it's clearly not something the film is interested in. And, anyway, Anne is driven throughout simply by lust for La Rochelle. And having been spurned and unable to sell his wife for profit, she maroons the couple to die in a sandbar, before having a change of heart so she can be killed off as a hero. Somehow. <laughs> it seems that over the years people have tried to read a lot into Jacques Tourneur's Anne of the Indies, seeking deep meaning and commentary, but it's not there. It's a competently enough produced action film, and Jean Peters is at least mildly engaging in a title role, but like its main character, it's very, very shallow, and there's little reason to recommend it. Especially not the actual bear wrestling which is at best unpleasant to watch, or the laughably bad treasure map used by La Rochelle to entice Anne and lure her to destruction, which was presumably drawn by the bear. <laughs> if there's a standout, it's Herbert Marshall as the ship's doctor, whose conscience, drowned under decades of grog, finally begins to assert itself and attempts to give Providence some moral guidance. But, well, the whole film swashes insufficient buckles and it's not worth bothering with. Yep, uh, grave disappointment, this one, uh, because I'd read a bit about Anne Bonny when this came up as a potential inclusion on this risk and Anne Bonny seemed like a very interesting character. You surely could make a great film out of this. And no. No. <laughs> um, this is ridiculous. Uh, but I mean, <laughs> um, there's obviously a lot of mileage that could be had about having a woman acting what is was very much a man's world for this kind of thing, and how would that go? And the answer in this film's logic appears to be she would act as if she's in the world's worst melodrama. <laughs> and, yeah, just, just everything that she does is either about petty jealousy or or lust, as you say. It, it did not treat her as a character in, as much as, in her own right as much as it should have done. Um, she has been given little in the way of character motivation and it's just a kind of silly premise for a film it's trying desperately hard to be a doomed romance that in a way that doesn't make any sense and it's just quite embarrassing to watch <laughs> yeah not great stuff um likewise i'd read that this was held in some regard over the years and yeah i, I do not see it at all it's only saving grace is it's quite short, uh, um, so you don't need to put up with it for too long. But that's the only positive thing I can really say about it. That's perhaps a little harsh, yet, as you say. Um, she, everyone involved is doing their best. It's just that the script's absolutely terrible, and uh, 
really, yeah, I would give this one a wide berth. It's um, of no real interest at all in this modern age. Um, no, a bit of disappointment, this one. Yeah, I mean, the the film, the, the whole way through the film, basically felt she was like one step away from swooning. Exactly, yeah. It's, um, and it, she felt, it's almost like they were trying to make her as weak as they possibly could, despite the fact that clearly she'd have to be a very strong woman, pretty much by definition. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it just never felt even remotely true as a character um, character arc for, the, for her. No, it's, yeah, it seems like the whole thing, melodrama is a good word, Scott, soap opera, basically. It's more yeah. like, it's it's basically like a mules, a mules and bin. A Mills and Boone um, film, um, yeah. those which I believe still exist. I remember my grand reading them when it was be like those romantic books that, um, yeah. with pictures of like swimming women and muscular men in the cover and like kind of chased romance. I think, but it feels yeah. like that the whole way through. It's just, it's not the character's not interesting. She's like, oh look, I am strong woman. Oh wait, look, there's a pretty man, in it. and then she just falls apart, and that's all that matters after that point. Yes, mm. and also the film starts off with her as a murderer, and uh, I'm not really ever back on board with that. I know that's the danger of a whole episode about uh, pirates, and I am going to be coming back to this point in particular. But you can take pirates in a way and make them not sympathetic, like they, you're quite happy to accept them as the heroes of the piece. Mm. Um, like Captain Blood's a good example. He's kind of forced into piracy. He was not. He was uh, a law-abiding citizen um, yeah. who was had a complete injustice done to him, sold into slavery. So, right, well, I'm getting out of this. Then you'll pay for that. Yeah. Whereas in this, it's like no, she's just murdering um, people she took prisoner because. Meh. And like I said, <laughs> this yeah. weird hand wavy explanation about somehow. The British had killed her brother. I'm like, yeah, th- this is not good. Um, and why would I care about these people? There's nothing interesting about them. They're just they're villains. Um, yeah, it's it's very disappointing because what would it's a very a very much a sausage fest this episode for the most part. <laughs> um, beyond like uh, women, for the most part, are only going to pop up as love interests. And this is the one opportunity, like that probably the most famous female pirate of all as I said really interesting backstory as much as you can gather like nobody knows much about these things they weren't well documented yeah. um, a lot was based on hearsay and like maybe newspaper reports and stuff or whatever the similar thing was in the early 18th century and but yeah this could be really interesting oh no that's what they did with her right what a disappointment yes. <laughs> what a waste yeah an absolute waste yeah so we're going to jump forward quite a number of years now, three decades more or less, and a perhaps rather surprising inclusion in terms of both the director and star, Scott, in Pirates. Yes. Right then, Roman Polanski's Pirates. Uh, there is, of course, one thing that comes to mind when you hear the name Roman Polanski, and it's certainly not Pirates. Unlawful sexual intercourse with a minor aside, and whether you want to put that to one side of the decision, I shall leave entirely to you. Is it worth that moral, moral headache to view pirates? No. There we go. Uh, but 
seeing as we're a film review podcast, I suppose we might as well review it. Um, set in 1659, we're introduced to Walter Matthau, of all people, his notorious pirate Captain Red, uh, with his loyal sidekick Chris Campion's John Baptiste, or Frog, uh, as he's known, adrift on a raft and contemplating cannibalism. But before that line is crossed, they are rescued by a homeward-bound Spanish treasure galleon, the Neptune, and they're both immediately thrown in the brig. Their red starts to plot to force a mutiny on the Neptune and claim their prized treasure, an Aztec throne of gold for himself. On the other side of the ship are Damien Thomas's Don Alfonso, taking over as captain after the death of the original one, who's trying to seduce a passenger, Charlotte Lewis Maria Dolores, the niece of Maracaibo's governor, who Frog has also taken quite a shine to. And, well, so it goes with mutinies and counter-mutinies and ransoming and a single-minded pursuit of that shiny furniture that will ultimately lead to Red's undoing. Now, if we're being positive, it might be nice to see pirates being, well, unscrupulous brigands and not the more Robin Hood-esque freedom fighters that they're often massaged into in films looking for more sympathy for them. But being that this is nominally a comedy, uh, it's a bit of a strange... (laughs) Bit of a strange situation to make Red the butt of the joke when he's also being quite so unpleasant. And it's also a shame that the jokes aren't actually funny in <laughs> any way, given the, especially the ill advised slapstick routines that are just embarrassing. You know, <laughs> poop deck is not literal. Um, yes, why were the people <laughs> all over the deck, Scott? I could understand that. Like, that doesn't happen. Why is that there? Yes, I have no clue. Walter Matthau gives it his all, to be fair, with some enthusiastic delivery of lines that really don't deserve a lot of enthusiasm. Um, it's not all bad. Uh, for example, the production design is entirely impeccable, from the costuming to the full-sized replica galleon built for the film mm. at tremendous cost, which does look absolutely fantastic. Um, however, that aside, I don't think I've got a great deal positive to say about this film. It's aiming at a younger crowd, I suppose, but it seems that the way they interpreted that aim is to make all of the jokes a bit too silly for a film that's threatening to rape characters this often. Yeah, a bit of a clash of styles and a bit of a mess, and I did not get a great deal of enjoyment out of Roman Polanski's Pirates at all. Uh, Drew, any better? Um, quite a disappointment for me, I would say, don't bother. Yes, unfortunately my experience was similar to yours, perhaps even worse. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's particularly disappointing too, given that we did have another film shortlisted for this episode, which I watched before Scott and vetoed. <laughs> yes, that, that's a good word. Um, <laughs> vetoed because it was appalling. And, you know, when it already gone for its seventh rape joke by the 20th minute, none of which obviously <laughs> were funny. Uh, I don't want to talk about this film. Um, I'll have to talk about that stuff and here I am having watched the next film and having to talk about that stuff and I'm not happy (laughs) Um, I had never heard of this film uh, and I I watched the film having looked up nothing about it at all other than I knew it was Roman Polanski and that was it and and I'm quite capable of separating the art from the artist particularly when it's the director when it's someone on screen I think that's a bit more difficult But I'm okay. I may have talked about Roman Polanski films on this podcast for at least one, which is Chinatown. So um, I had no particular issue with that. And but coming into I knew nothing about the film. Uh, I thought Roman Polanski doing a, a pirate film. Okay, I'll give it a go. I had no idea what it was meant to be. Hmm. And you know, despite the human feces for some reason in the middle of the deck, I still wasn't even convinced at that point that they were trying to be a comedy. Um, that's largely because none of it's funny. Yeah. Uh, it took me a while to actually decide that that was definitely, because even Walter Matthau's 
presence doesn't necessarily mean it's a comedy. You might lean yeah. that way, but if he is in straight stuff like the taking of Pelham one, two, three, for instance. But it, it goes on. It's like, oh, this is trying to be funny. It isn't. Yes. Um, and again, we have the problem of the pirates. When you have something like the Pirates of the Caribbean films, which we aren't covering in this episode, they were a bit too obvious, we thought. Hmm. Uh, but at least I, I assume that's what you thought. I'm really yeah. guessing your thoughts, Scott. But although the first one does have the Royal Navy in it, it's, it's not, they're not really villainous pirates, especially not Jack Sparrow. And if there's enemies, it's either sea creatures or other pirates. And it's, so you kind of can separate yourself from that completely. And, and because it's also a comedy thing, so it's, not to be taken seriously. Whereas the pirates here are your 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 nasty pirates, as Scott mentioned, threatening to rape people at multiple points during the film, and somehow they're supposed to be the heroes. Yeah, it's not enjoyable, especially when the person threatening the rape or trying to force someone else to threaten rape is Walter Matthau, your main character. <laughs> it's not fun. It's not enjoyable. It's also painfully unfunny for most of it. And the strange thing is too, like. The whole film seems to be set up that we're supposed to be rooting for the pirates, that the pirates are the heroes, but not. they're the only ones doing these villainous things. And we're supposed to somehow think that the Spanish are the villains. And historical context tells us that they probably didn't ask for that big Aztec throne. You know, they, they were yes. doing some nice things there. <laughs> in the world of this film in particular, though, it's nothing. The Spaniards are fine. Apart from, well, not being Spanish, they're all English. And yes. the Dutchman's English. <laughs> and Walter Matthews played an Englishman. And only um, Chris Campion as Jean-Baptiste or Frog is actually French. And it's all very confusing because you have to be told that the Dutchman's a Dutchman because he's English because he's played by Roy Kinnear. <laughs> right. But yeah, the Spanishness are fine. They're, they're loyally serving the Spanish crown. They talk about it a few times... None of them is villainous. They all follow orders. They they don't double cross anyone. They don't stab anyone. You see them meeting out punishment and stuff, but that's kind of how that thing went at the time. So I'm not in the context, not that bothered by that. Yeah. No, it's the pirates that were supposed to root for. And no, so it's very hard to get invested in a film where, like, from the beginning, none of them are likable, especially not um, Captain Red. Yeah. Um, and it's a real waste of. Walter Matthau, who I like a great deal. Why they crippled him with this... Well, to be honest, I've heard worse English accents, but not brilliant, not particularly consistent English accent. And yeah, it, it's a weird film. I don't understand why this exists. And also I resent it existing because I skipped Yellowbeard. Well, I watched all of Yellowbeard, but skipped it from this podcast and ended up with this stuff in it anyway, and I'm not happy. <laughs> <laughs> also, don't watch Yellowbeard. It's appalling. Yeah. <laughs> It's a twofer, then, of films to avoid. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I watched the damn thing. I may as well get some value out of it. I'll just at least warn other people <laughs> off in case they're... Like we were, Scott, thinking, well, it's Graham Chapman and other Monty Python people in, in a pirate film. That might be fun. No. How bad could it be? Oh, yes. Oh, right, yes. Well, that answered that question definitively. <laughs> this was not so good. Will we have any more joy with Muppets Treasure Island, then, Drew? Well, obviously, Scott, it's the Muppets. How could you not? Yes. <laughs> to the southwest, pirate galleons. To the southeast, multi-armed Zanzibarian shark women and their exploding wigs of death. 
to the northwest, dirty dishes. How does she do that? <laughs> and to the northeast, then? An irreverent Muppet take on probably the most famous pirate story of all, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. For those unfamiliar with the story, or who need a quick refresher, an old pirate called Billy Bones is staying at an inn when he is delivered the Black Spot, a signal of coming reckoning by his piratey former chums. This more or less frightens him to death, but not before he passes his treasure map, marked with an X of course, onto young Jim Hawkins. Young Master Hawkins takes the map to a rich man named Trelawney, who agrees to make a voyage to find the treasure on its distant island, hiring Captain Smollett to command the ship, the Hispaniola, and because Trelawney is, um, shall we say, gullible, <laughs> also hiring an entire crew of pirates, amongst whom is a cook by the name of Long John Silver. So, well, it'll be a pirate ship before you can say pieces of eight. As with The Muppet Christmas Carol a few years before this, the story is pretty close to the source material, just with certain felt favourites in its major roles. Captain Smollett is a familiar shade of green. Squire Trelawney, notably Ursine. The ship's figurehead has a complaining sort of quality. <laughs> and Ben Gunn is now Benjamina Gunn. And she's not someone you'd want to anger. And all that with added songs and lots of fourth wall breaking meta comments. I've never cared much for most of the rather schmaltzy songs Kermit gets lumbered with in most of the Muppets big screen outings. But, well, that's about it for negatives for me. And here it's more than balanced out by the likes of songs like Shiver My Timbers and Cabin Fever. Like the Muppet Christmas Carol, it's great and simply a whole lot of fun. Really, is there anything else you need to know? It's funny, silly, and the few humans involved, Billy Conley, Kevin Bishop, Jennifer Saunders, and especially a great Tim Curry, are clearly having a good time too, which just keeps everything really enjoyable. It's Treasure Island with Muppets. It's great. Boom. <laughs> Shakal, Akal. Boom. Shakal, Akal. Yeah. I mean, adding Muppets to anything, much like bacon, tends to make it great, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> from Unless you add something. bacon to Muppets, that's not going to work. <laughs> well, no, a bit too cheap. All that goosey um, felt, ugh. <laughs> um, just on a quick sketch around, this does not seem to be one of the, the better regarded Muppets outings, and I don't know why. I really, really, really enjoyed this. Um, lovely little palate cleanser, particularly if you've watched the, some of the other films we've talked about um, before it. And yeah, it's really funny. I, I think... Kind of like what you're saying. I, I could have done with maybe one less song. I would happily have traded that for another few minutes of either Billy Conley or Tim Curry chewing the scenery because they're fantastic in it, and I would have happily lapped up some more of that. Yeah, perhaps some of the sappier songs are its weakest points, but the rest of it is so great and so funny, and so many great lines and um, the, the kind of running gag of Rizzo the Rat running the pirate ship as a cruise for rats as well and having them do like contemporary cruise activities at the same time as the rest of things going on was a great really sharp script and just it's just incredibly funny as a lot of the Muppets things are and yeah while also uh, maintaining the structure of a classic story and it all works really well um I was had an absolute blast watching this and uh yeah if for some reason you haven't watched it already then do so I, I thought it was great uh 
I disagree with you, Roger Reber. You're wrong about this. It's actually good. With the exception of our second last film, I think, because that was a real story, this is the best narrative of any of the films (laughs) we're talking about. And it was a Muppet film. Uh, (laughs) I never realised that it had um, received negative reviews and things. Obviously, all films have potentially yes. received some, but I'd always thought this was good. I'd also, I think like this and The Muppet Christmas Carol, the two films, the two back-to-back theatrical releases for The Muppets were just the best Muppet films. Uh, mm. And the only one that even comes close is the 20, is it 2014 Muppets? The one with Jason uh, Segel, anyway. Yeah. Um, and I don't like Walter, and given Walter's a major character in that, that kind of yeah. cripples that one somewhat for me. But these were the two best ones, because the film that followed us, I think, was Muppets from Space, which is terrible. Uh, but these two are great, and there's, a, there's such catchy songs. Yeah, it seemed to get uh, weird, mediocre, if not completely negative reason, number of sites. Sorry to say, but it's going back this far. But uh, yeah, I think that's... Maybe it's because there was a bit more familiarity with Muppets at the time. And maybe they were seen as sort of flogging a bit of a dead horse, but certainly viewed from now, where there is not uh, so much Muppets knocking around, it's certainly great to go back and visit it again. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it had, this must have been about the time Muppets Tonight was on, because they were starting to yeah. introduce some of those characters, because there may be some of the minor characters from it, but the only one I really know from Muppets Tonight that's in this is Clueless. But. That's great because uh, Clueless's laugh ever since I first saw this film like 25 years ago at first like, it, I had this uh, message alert tone Fred he's like <laughs> uh, I'm walking up with the black spot to give to John, John, Long John Silver and he says yeah. this is for you this is for you like, this is for you it gets stuck in my head like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it's always like a Woody the start of a Woody Woodpecker laugh and it's just like, yes. um, so they introduced a wee bit of the new stuff in there and and I've completely gone away from my point because I've, once again I've distracted myself with Clueless Morgan <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah it's just like, the way it starts off it's just so much fun that great Shiver My Timber song yeah. the whole thing is just fun and it's not taking itself or anything else seriously and it's just a whole lot of fun and I don't understand how people can not like this Yes, monsters, monsters all of you Soulless demons, yes. Scott Yeah, look, if you like the Muppets uh, this is one of the best Muppets films there is and there are actually quite a lot of them now. a lot of TV movies and stuff too this is great and it's almost as good as a Muppet Christmas Carol and that's amazing so you should yeah. definitely watch this if you like the Muppets Absolutely And to move on to something sorry Scott if, if I'm stepping your toes off having mentioned this uh, stop me but before you go on can, my fascination with why things are have their titles changed The Pirates An Adventure with Scientists that's a great name because it sounds vaguely yes. ridiculous and the extra um, exclamation marks in the title brilliant and then in the United States for some reason released as the Pirates Band of Misfits which is a terrible name um, yes and yeah, I very much agree with this title <laughs> despite what the current executive branch of the United States government may wish Americans do know what scientists are they have <laughs> lots of them they're quite good at it so why would you take that name away it doesn't make any sense to me. No. Americans definitely know what scientists are. <laughs> it's the same language. Weird, weird choice. Um, yes, 
that, that was well. I could have just said now Scott will talk about the pirates and adventure with scientists, but well, apparently I like the sound of my own voice. So. <laughs> <laughs> Please yeah, right, so yeah, I very much approve of the title, which gives a very accurate description of the contents of the film, so, so much so that no further review is required. <laughs> Five stars, says Paul Ross. No, all right then. Um, this urban animations outing, also known by the as you may, vastly inferior title of Pirates Band of Misfits, is based on a series of kids' books that I am unfamiliar with. It introduces us to Hugh Grant's The Pirate Captain and his band of ham-loving piracy enthusiasts, who seem like nice people but awful pirates. Hence their almost complete lack of plunder booty, meaning that Pirate Captain will once again not achieve his dream of being named Pirate of the Year and gaining the approval of Brian Bessett's Pirate King. A pep talk from the ship's number two, voiced by Tim from the office, sees Pirate's Captain resolve to redouble their efforts, and it seems like their luck might be turning around from another failure when they board David Tennant's young Charles Darwin ship, who recognises that the Pirate Captain's beloved Parrot is in fact a dodo, perhaps the last in the world. He says that they could achieve great fame and prizes if only they could go back to London to present Polly at the Royal Society. The only downside, of course, would be heading into, well, London, where Imelda Staunton's Queen Victoria sits, festering in her legendary hatred of the pirates. Will the pirates disguise as scientists hold up? Does Queen Victoria have ulterior culinary motives for the dodo? <laughs> Will there be wild adventures involving baking soda and vinegar? The answers can only be found by watching this film. Or reading the Wikipedia recap, I suppose, but I recommend that you watch the film instead because it's really quite good indeed. The most important thing to say about this, I suppose, is that it's very funny and consistently entertaining. I roundly applaud the script and the performances. I should also add that it looks wonderful too. Um, as what we've done said with Chicken Run a few weeks back, it's clearly recognisable as an Ardman production, but at the same time it's a markedly different feel to the other work, just as much as Chicken Run felt distinct from Wallace and Gromit. I think it's mainly static pictures that emphasise Ardman's visual similarities. And I suppose with that full fruit recommendation already given, there's not much more to say about the pirates in Adventure with Scientists, at least until the invention of a time machine that will allow me to go back and shout at people, particularly myself, uh, for not watching this enough back on its release in Oversight which has doomed us to a world where no sequels were made. A great shame, as I would love to see the pirates in an adventure with communists, but such is life. <laughs> uh, yes, sir. I don't know if it's a surprise exactly. I, was, I normally expect decent things from Ardman, but I uh, hadn't got with this, and I really, really liked this. Uh, yes, very funny. Loved it. I remember this being released, um, and for now, for the life of me, I can't work out why I didn't watch it. Yeah. Why it took <laughs> me eight years to actually get around to seeing it. Uh, and again, I've clearly missed out because it's a great deal of fun. While watching this, I was thinking about the the what Ardman looking thing. This may be like, like while it's clearly Ardman, it may be the most individual looking Ardman film. It's a, like the least Ardmany if you yeah. follow. And I don't think it's just a static image thing. No scope. The, the the real film that had made me say all these things about Ardman in particular was Early Man, and Early Man everything about it just feels so generic Ardman right. um, so it's not just a I'm sure it's not just a still thing although I should maybe revisit early man see if I have a better uh, experience with it this time around but this yeah it it's great uh, Ardman do make some great stuff uh, they I think the only time this that this film kind of lost my attention a bit was the big action set piece at the end which is something that most Ardman stuff has to some degree uh, mm. Even like the Wallace and Gromit shorts, thirty minute shorts, that is more just a thing with me. I think because in live action films, I tend to switch off unless it's like a really inventive action scene anyway, because they they all seem to go on forever and not have a lot of point. And like, 
they don't tend to do an awful lot for me. Right. Um, so it's like that sort of thing. It's like, oh, it's this big action scene. I'd have preferred the jokes, to be honest. <laughs> Could you not just um, kept the fun bits instead? And now you're just doing a very, very ambitious and very well animated action set piece. But I more or less don't care. I prefer <laughs> some jokes. And also, like, it's not for the first time I realised now. I really like Hugh Grant, actually. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the films that first brought to my attention are things that don't interest me at all. Four Wins and Three Notes is a terrible film. And Notting Hill and the persona of Hugh Grant. But I've seen him so many things now that I really, really like him. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, he's actually, I'm not sure given some of his um, things he said of late that he's particularly self-aware, but he certainly is willing to kind of make fun of himself. And I kind of feel there's a wee bit of that in the way he portrays the pirate captain in this. Yeah. Uh, but clearly he's obviously a decent actor. Uh, so for me to have dismissed him out of hand like, in the early 90s, it was, was clearly unfair. Um, we're not talking like a, the gentleman level of performance here or even Paddington too, <laughs> but it's, yeah. it's a great deal of fun in this. Again, there's always a question with animation, like whether you really need the celebrity cast. But this particular celebrity cast, apart from maybe Imelda Staunton, does pretty well. So I'm pretty happy yeah. with it. Um, <laughs> if there's a downside, it's there's not enough Brian Blessed because there is never enough <laughs> Brian Blessed. You can't have enough Brian Blessed. He's Brian Blessed. Gordon's <laughs> alive. Um, <laughs> But yeah, other than that, it's um, highly recommended. It's a great deal of fun and Artmen are great. And once again, we see how good their animation is. You do wonder why they ever thought making Flushed Away was a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Let's take all our our skill and our trademark looking stuff uh, and then make a CG version of it. Like, eh? Why? Like a, a worse facsimile of what you already do extremely well. What is the point? Yeah, I suppose it was an experimentation, but I, I don't know why they did it with the why they did it flushed away, and not maybe some more throwaway short that would have been like a half hour or something rather than the, the full yeah. one. Because flushed away, flushed away was all right, but I mean it, it didn't have anything like the charm and the, the heart that the rest of Armin stuff does. It's a bit of a bit of an outlier in that regard. Yep. So for a bit of a change of pace, shall we move on to Captain Phillips? Yeah, and this is really different from every other film on this list, I think, Scott, isn't it? It's yes. more than any Right others. up for modern piracy, yeah. 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 So, real-life pirates again here, and the only contemporary ones we'll encounter in this episode. With this film, based on the true story, the usual assumed provisos here, mm-hmm. of the hijacking of the MV Maersk, Alabama, and the taking hostage of its captain, Richard Phillips, by Somali pirates in 2009. Shot in a pseudo-documentary style, the film begins with Captain Phillips saying goodbye to his wife and setting off for his next trip as a merchant marine in command of a container ship on a route around the Horn of Africa, and then his preparations aboard ship for its departure, particularly anti-piracy defences. Meanwhile, a group of Somalis working for a warlord assemble a crew to attempt to hijack a ship. Naturally, these two things soon collide. And after initially having been fought off, the pirates return and board the ship, where Philip's well-drilled crew ensure things don't go to plan for the Smallies, and they leave with wounds, a little cash, at least compared to what they expected to get, and, unfortunately for him, Captain Phillips, who must hope that the US Navy can rescue him. 
I thought when I last watched this film, back in the long ago before times of 2014, <laughs> that the pirates were given short shrift as far as backstory goes. I felt that less this time, though I would certainly have liked the hints that are given about a degree of lack of choice in their career to have been expounded upon. Beyond any wider-ranging, deeper causes such as globalisation, colonialism and income inequality, knowing whether the pirates are pirates because they are violent thieves or because they'll be killed if they don't do it hugely changes the dynamics and the way the audience feels about them. But, well, they're at least not one-dimensional villains here. Talking of the pirates, while Paul Greengrass directs established actors aboard the crew of the Alabama, notably Tom Hanks in the title role, he cast amateur Somali actors as the pirates. That's a strange, often self-congratulatory thing that happens every now and again in films, and that, actually, as Craig observed when he talked about this film back in the one-liner days, tends to show that anyone can do this job. <laughs> it can backfire in other ways, of course. But for me, it largely works here, particularly Barkhad Abdi, who has gone on to parts in In the Sky and Blade Runner 2049 since, as Abdul Musay, the leader of the pirate group, who brings a nervous energy and caginess to the role that works well with a character who is dangerous but also scared, and in some ways out of his depth. Why Tom Hanks persists in trying to do accents? Here in Massachusetts, when they are very much not the strength of his, continues to baffle me, particularly when it's irrelevant to either the character or setting, at least as portrayed in this fictionalised version of the events. But it's a great performance from him otherwise, uh, with his final scene being particularly effective, and a huge journey from the competent, stoic mariner of the film's first half. Greengrass's direction gradually builds attention, with a marked lack of sensationalism in the camera work of the editing, by keeping the audience involved intimately with the characters and allowing the performances, locations and the increasing stakes to increase the pressure, with the lengthy scene in the claustrophobic confines of a lifeboat particularly effective, before a quietly powerful final scene sees Philip's ordeal really hit him. It's a very solid thriller and definitely worth watching if you haven't seen it before. Yes, I hadn't seen this before actually. Um, Something a bit of an oversight. I don't know if I went through a phase of being tired of Paul Greengrass, and maybe had I watched it in that time frame, which would have been around about when this came out, and I, I might have not liked it so much um, because a lot of it is very Paul Greengrassy. Mm. Um, but with a bit of distance and a bit of separation, I, I, I can see that it really works for this film in a way that it didn't for the kind of vaguely similarly themed United ninety three, um, which I, I just found annoying. But the, mm-hmm. the way that he gets that he gets so close and sort of in the face with these kind of cramped conditions sort of suits this film in particular really well. And um, as you say, very good at cranking up tension and keeping you like really involved and in the face of everyone that's uh, that's going through this. And uh, yeah, a highly effective thriller uh, for me. I very much enjoyed it. Uh, yes, so don't have anything much to add over what you said there. I think you've covered anything that I would want to applaud as well, um, particularly, of course, Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks does really well in this. Uh, it's a great performance and a really affecting uh, closing scene, as, as you say. So, yes, uh, I, I, again, another film I would, I would quite highly recommend. Uh, yes, works incredibly well. Yeah, c- could have done with a, a little bit more backstory as to why people are being driven into piracy if that's the kind of angle they want to take but um, it's I suppose it's given just about as much detail as you need for a, a, what is effectively a, a blockbuster <laughs> thriller film uh, rather than a, a, a deep uh, documentary on the you know global capitalism and the 
Somali culture and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, yes, I, I did enjoy this quite a lot, and I, I would certainly recommend it to anyone. Very good thriller, and Warren Greengrass is better efforts, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, United, back when we talked about it um, in a, pod, a previous podcast, Scott, um, United 93 was one of the things I mentioned. It's like, it's, mm-hmm. it came as like, United 93 was pretty terrible. Um, and there's a lot of similarities here in terms of the approach um, and things like that. But this is just so much more effective. Um, yeah. And yeah, like there's enough of the Somali pirates backstory in it. Like, so, as I said, they're not one dimensional victims, they're not just simply the bad guys. Yeah. Uh, but there was a, a bit of dialogue. They're talking about, like, oh, yeah, a Muse is saying, oh, we're, we're fishermen. And Tom Max says to them, like, oh, you could be something else. Oh, there's, there's choices. Yeah, it's, like, it's not just fishermen, uh, yeah. fishermen or piracy. And he says, maybe in America, Irish, maybe in America. Yeah. And like, it's that section, it felt like it, to me like it was screaming out for a scene like in Three Kings, mm-hmm. when the guy's torturing, the torturer is like talking about like the disparity between the cultures and the economy and like the things the United States have done bad and stuff like that. Just yeah. that, whether it would have fitted in, maybe not, but it's that just felt like it was like the right place to put something like that. Yeah, uh, yeah, and then when you have the bit later when like Tom Hanks sees the kind of things that Moose is willing to do, and he says, "You're not just a fisherman, are you?" Like, yeah, yeah. more, please. Just, I want you to explore that a bit more. Yeah, and arguably not the setting for it, but I just I was vaguely frustrated <laughs> that, that they didn't go there because that could have been really interesting. Yeah, you're stymied somewhat in that the character doesn't speak perfectly fluent English so having kind of a back and forth on that is not really going to work believably yeah so that's maybe one of a few reasons you wouldn't have it in there I just I, that could have been really quite good you can have a, a scene in the the lifeboat where they're like they're discussing because I mean so much of it's all just invented anyway so maybe yeah. they could have they could have had that conversation who knows they've been in that lifeboat for three days or something yeah um, but while they're in there, they could have had this philosophical argument or a political argument that could have been quite interesting. And it wouldn't have to be particularly long. It's a two-hour film. You could have done five minutes of that without too much trouble, I would imagine, without... Oh, would it maybe have broken attention? Is maybe the biggest argument hmm. I could think of to not do that. Yeah. Uh, but again, that's it's irrelevant. It's a very good thriller. It's particularly good Tom Hanks' performance. Once again, I'm wondering, like... How his performance in Greyhound was so anodyne. Yeah. Um, yeah. When he apparently that was a passion project, and this he's, he was an actor for hire, and he gives such a good performance. And it's like there's some similarities to the conditions he finds himself in, and that's sort of thing. That's why I mentioned that in particular, not just because it's on the sea. Yeah. Whether it's Hanks' best performance as a whole film, I don't know, but I don't think I've seen him do anything better than that final scene. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a powerful moment, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And it's it's absolutely believable to him. And things like your know, death scenes, for instance, you, there's such a way of angels, but like, well, who knows what that would actually be like? And it's really hard to do. Yeah. Um, but I think, well, the subtle ones tend to be the best. And that's, there's like quite a lot of subtlety in that. It's like the bewilderment, um, the shock, and things like that. That is just a very impressive scene from it. It's like, I don't think I've seen him do better than that one scene. And yeah, I'm uh, really rather impressed. But I'd forgotten quite how affecting that scene was and how how believable it is. 
you know, in as much as my um, first-hand experience of um, incredibly traumatised people isn't great, as um, yeah. you can imagine, for, for it's the case for most people, but it had a real ring of truthiness to it, as you're fond of saying, Scott. <laughs> yeah, um, definitely one to check out if you haven't done so already. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right, we're going to move on then to, well, what can be better than Pirate Scott? Pirates space, pirate. space, obviously. Yes. <laughs> Captain Harlock's Space Pirate. Yes, we head off into the far future in our final 3D anime adventure with Harlock's Space Pirate, or those words in various different orders depending on the part of the world you're in. And somehow I've saddled myself with trying to recap this, which was an oversight on my part, to be honest. <laughs> I intend to give you more of the broad strokes here because, frankly, I'm not all that sure that this film knows its own details or perhaps it just didn't translate them properly. Uh, but yes, in the distant future, mankind has spread across the galaxy but found no aliens of note, which it claims to be a major part of the species collective on we, although in the same sentence it also introduces a race of space elves that might or might not be composed of dark matter, which might or might not be actual magic. Hard science, or understandable, this film is not. Uh, With any rate, uh, with galaxy-wide resources dwindling, humanity wants to return to the idyllic Mother Earth. However, the ruling Gaia sanction disagrees, declaring Earth a sacred planet forbidden to humanity from their space hammer-inspired spire palace. One man seeks to undo this, broadly speaking, that being space pirate Captain Harlock and his gang of space pirates, and their almost comically oversized skull-laden space super dreadnought, who have been stealing future nukes to blow up time. Don't ask. (laughs) Admiral Azora of the Gaia Sanction, unable to stop Harlock through conventional methods, instead hatches a plan to embed his younger brother Yama on Harlock's crew. Despite seeing through this ruse instantly, it seems to make no difference to Harlock, perhaps because he's too busy muttering about fate and destiny and all that to care like the massive edgelord that he is. And telling you much more than this is a bit of a waste of time because even that little recap thus far is not so much recontextualised as completely retconned approximately every 10 minutes with increasingly zany soap opera histrionics ratcheted up particularly between Azora and Yama until it reaches an end point where I think someone was firing Jupiter at someone else look to be honest I'd completely given up trying to follow any of this after the first hour so I'm not 100% sure I think the politest thing I can say about Harlock is that it is entirely preposterous which is why I'm a little surprised to hear myself say that I didn't entirely hate it, despite its apparent best efforts. Um, That's the power of completely gratuitous space battles, I suppose. But that aside, and not all that far to aside at that, there's not a lot to recommend in Harlock, apart perhaps from a couple of cool character designs, namely Harlock and, well, Harlock's ship, which probably has more personality than the supposed protagonist of Yama. The rest of the film's characters and animations are incredibly inconsistent. There's some scenes and designs that clearly have put a lot of time and effort put into them, you know, like that aforementioned Spire Palace thing, and then there's scenes that look like they're using in-game footage from a PlayStation two-year Final Fantasy game. What I'm trying to say that is, even with me cutting this more slack than I'd care to justify, this is still a baffling experience, but in a bad way that's very hard to care about. Give it a wide berth, my hearties. Truth, did you get any more joy out of this than I did? I think less. Uh, first of all, Captain Harlock's space pirate isn't a pirate. No. There's nothing pirate about anything in this film, so that, that's good. He dresses like a pirate and his ship has a big skull and crossbones on it, so close enough. Yeah, but nothing he does is actually piratey. <laughs> yes. Um, unless pirates are known for trying to blow up time to undo their <laughs> own mistake. Mm. Uh, first of all, I think it, 
I must have um, unknowingly selected the dub titles or something, uh, which I hate, but I didn't realise that's what I was doing because now you're right. you're saying these names like he was called Logan, not Yam in the version I watched. Like, um, yeah, that's right. They changed it. The, so the, uh, what, that dub. But like, why? Why change it? Why not just call him Yama? Yama's not a difficult word for English speakers to say. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I, uh, I don't understand changes like that. But um, so why change that and not the rest of the story to make it make sense? <laughs> yes, um, so I do wonder how much else changed. But, but yeah, like, it's it's not on a good fit. It starts off like humans are all alone in the universe, apart from how they're not because we found these other folk. <laughs> o- okay, it's like what? What? Um, this, did you proofread this at all? <laughs> I, I'm glad you mentioned Final Fantasy though, because that was very much what was on my head. That the the pretty boy main character that was always like this is a Final Fantasy character and yeah. it felt so like and for the most part the the human character design is incredibly dull yeah um, whereas there's like the ship's really interesting there's some interest in like the the photon converger matrix which is apparently harnessing the power of a um, entire neutron star is less powerful than Jupiter, but okay, I'm, I'm not going down that road. I can hear on it, uh, picking holes in this, but it comes from the design, that stuff, really interesting, like good sci-fi design, and then like the blandest character design you can possibly imagine, apart from, yeah, as you say, Harlock himself, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, and in this world where they can transport magically neutron stars all across the galaxy and turn them into weapons, but apparently if you and break your back, you're paralyzed for life, and they can't fix that. <laughs> you know, your technology is not great here. Yes. Uh, it's like, maybe that's there for character reasons. Hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, talking of character design, the same, it's the same. Like, why does so much Japanese media seem to be written by 12 year old boys? It's very frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You have, like, there's one notable female character, if you exclude the strange white-eyed elf woman um mm. and right near the start you see her spinning about naked in some sort of anti-gravity shower and why does that scene exist so they can <laughs> have a scene where she's spinning about naked in like na- naked in an anti-gravity shower yeah. Yeah. it's pathetic it really is it's so tiresome and it's it affects so much otherwise otherwise good japanese media as well not that this is some of the otherwise good stuff, it's just bad. Um, yeah. yeah. And this it's very sort of too. 80s action film, isn't it, where they just have people in the shower for no reason, just so they can get some boobs in. It's, yeah. uh, it's like they never grew out of that face in the media. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the same character who's naked at one point for so they can have a scene where she's naked. Also, uh, the character's costume design is this material that's so tight and somehow so thin that you can see her thong prominently through it and the <laughs> camera angles are picked so you're in no doubt about that. Like, this is, I mean, it's written by a 12-year-old and, or animated by a 12-year-old. It's pathetic. Grow yeah. up. <laughs> it's so crass. I have no time for that. Like, there's plenty of reasons to have kind of sexy scenes in the film or sensual or whatever, Adults do those things, and like sometimes it's important for character development or plot development or mood. There are reasons to do it. It's like, no, like basically the only woman in this. Look, look, here's a thong you can see through her space. It's just, it's offensively childish, and maybe I'd let that go if the rest of it was good, but it's not. 
No. Nope. <laughs> uh, the whole setup of the story is that um, Yama or Logan is like this infiltrator. Kill Captain Harlock if you can. It mostly seems to be to gather information, but then you find that two thousand three through the film, they knew everything anyway. So what was the point of any of it? Yeah. Yes, that's very much the meta review of the entire film, isn't it? What was the point of any of this? <laughs> yeah, and, 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 yeah, that's you're right, Scott. Yeah. Because there's a point where there's a like the one other female character you see who's important to um, the two brothers, and she says, "I never loved you," so that um, he can get angry, murder her, and then go, "No, actually, I did." What? <laughs> Just yeah. What? Why? <laughs> uh, no way. Yeah. Psych. I do love you, but um, I want you to, to kill me. Mm? I believe that was the exact point at which I just threw my hands up in the air. Like, okay, <laughs> if if they don't understand why they're writing this film, I'm not going to work it out either. So, yeah. <laughs> nope. Um, just whatever. And then they lifted the entire end of it from Wally. <laughs> okay super original yeah um so this is not uh uh a property i'd heard anything about before scott but there seem to have been like many many captain harlock films over the years and mangas and anime um, series and things um, yeah i i was thinking that while i watched it because i knew it was based on like i'm big old series of manga stuff and i was wondering if this is like two or three seasons of like a manga comic that they've tried to condense into 90 minutes because the way it just barrels through everything like there's enough plot twists and character reveals and all that kind of stuff for a good few films in the first 10 to 15 minutes of this you know it's like they've just tried to take what should be like a very long series and squash it down to 90 minutes and this is what's resulted where just things are happening pretty much at random with no explanation or character motivation behind any of it and it's all very confusing and not worth keeping up with but I do wonder if maybe in its original non-compressed form it might make (laughs) a bit more sense and of characters you could actually start to care about because you might understand why on earth they're doing like a portion of the things they're trying to do but yeah the way it's been handled here where everything's just squashed together in this nonsensical parade of twists and turns and just garbage uh, does not work as a film Uh, i can't speak to any of the rest of them if they're any better or not but yeah this one in particular no no thank you (laughs) no um apparently it's uh toy's highest ever uh production budget like 30 million dollars and like it shows it looks really nicely animated, but it also looks really nicely animated to look like Final Fantasy cutscenes. Yeah. One of the bad ones, like 10 or something, you know, not, um, not one of the better regarded ones. I I assume they're all bad. I've only played um, 7 and it was appalling, and that's the one everybody seems to think is the best one, so I assume yes. the rest are all terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not good, unfortunately. I had uh, my feeling through most of it and now is kind of shrug emoji. Yes. <laughs> I'd be angry about this film if I could bring myself to care about it, but no. No thanks. I'd be angry about this film if I could quite work out what it was I was to be angry about. Like, <laughs> beyond the, the crass bits I understand entirely why I'm angry because like, you know, 12 year olds yes. don't get to write films. It's, uh, <laughs> That'll wrap us up for today then. We'll bring in the rigging of our business master, whatever other piratical 
<laughs> methods we can say to say that we've had enough for today. Um, if you would like to get in touch with us for any reason you like, then you can do through email at podcast at fudsonfilm.com or through Twitter. Uh, we're on there at fudsonfilm. And until next time, I shall bid you adieu, and I'm sure that Drew will do too. Off to Zanzibar to meet the Zanzibarbarians. Ha <laughs> ha